Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Andrew Baggerly. Andrew covers the Giants for the San Jose Mercury News and is also the author of the book Giant Splash. You can give Andrew a follow on Twitter at Extra Bags. Andrew, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Oh, thanks for the invite. Happy to be on with you. Well, let's start. I ask everyone this at the beginning. What got you into baseball in the first place? You know, it's uh, it's kind of funny. I played little league like everybody did. Played t-ball and uh, um, had older brothers who were uh, who played baseball. And, and of course, I think that the big thing that got me interested in the major leagues and following players was just collecting baseball cards. And uh, you know, I think as kids, it's it's fun to collect things, whether it's action figures or or cards or whatever. And the, you know, the challenge of completing the whole set and and trading and, and everything and uh, it, it helped me sort of uh, connect not only with the people that you'd see on TV but but also the history of the game um, you know uh, going back and in, and in, into older sets and, and older players and just reading the backs of baseball cards and you find out who the all-time greats were and and uh, you know it just sort of seemed like that was where my entry point was and 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 I've always enjoyed writing and Going back to being editor of the you know high school newspaper and stuff, I'd come out with my major league baseball predictions every year that I'm sure eight people read. So um, you know it's sort of something that I was into all along, and uh, definitely had an interest in in maybe being a play-by-play announcer or going somewhere along that that line. But when I got into college, uh, a lot of the opportunities that came to me were on the print side, and, and uh, I thought, well, okay, I'll try an internship at a newspaper and see how that works out. And, and, uh, you know, been very blessed and fortunate to have uh, over two decades in this business. And where it goes, it changes every year. And, uh, you know, we definitely know uh, that uh, the, the print business is, is has a finite future, I think. But, um, you know, there's always going to be a, a need for good stories well told. And, and there certainly is uh, tons of interest in baseball. And there's so many more ways to explore that now. It's just unbelievable where it's come from, you know, when I was a kid, not that long ago, um, you get, get to see one game a week and maybe your local team and that was it. Now you can follow anybody anytime, anywhere. So uh, really, really cool to be able to be a part of this business and uh, on all its platforms and, and, uh, and feel very fortunate. Now, when I was a kid, I collected cards too, and I loved it. But it was at a point where in the 80s and in the early 90s, we thought these cards were going to be our key to retire comfortably. Like we thought the 89 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr. was going to be our ticket to retirement. And it turns out it's worth like 30 <laughs> bucks. So were you collecting cards when they were worth something or were you collecting in the 80s and the 90s when they ended up being worth nothing? Yeah, I was about 1985, 86 is when I really started. I was about nine or 10 years old. And, and so, uh, you know, definitely it was that whole fever going on where, where, you know, anytime you pulled a rookie out, um, you know, you put it in your, in those nine, uh, nine card top loader sheets, plastic sheets, or, or if they were really special, you put them in the screw down, uh, uh, plastic cases, you know, but what I would do is I would go to a card show and I would, um, I would try to buy all of the hot rookies that I could, uh, you know, whether it was Greg Jeffries or, or Griffey. One year, I think I went looking only for Griffey 89 upper decks and I bought like about 15 of them and they were maybe six or eight bucks a piece. Then it was right after the cards came out. And then what I would do with the neighborhood kids is I, there were some that had stashes of cards from their dads or even their grandparents. And I remember trading like, you know, 10 Greg Jeffries for a Stan Musial or a Jackie Robinson. And so, uh, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm glad I have those cards as opposed to, uh, well, I still do have legions and legions of Sam Horns and, and, and Ricky Jordans and all the other guys who didn't pan out that, that one time you were so excited to get when you opened a pack of cards. 
Um, and I cannot bring myself to throw them away. Luckily, I have a nice dry attic storage space, and, and I probably have about 800 pounds of fairly useless cardboard out there, but I just cannot bring myself to get rid of them. Uh, but I'm sure one day I'll have to loosen myself from uh, from them. But I'll keep the ones that, that are really important to me, the ones that, uh, you know, I'm looking right now, I've got an Ernie Banks signed 1969 card I'm looking at right now that's over my desk. So uh, there's definitely a few that... Um, that, that will stay with me forever. Today is the Hall of Fame announcement day. The announcement as to who's getting in this year is happening later today. So we'll just hit on the Hall of Fame, of course, a little bit later. But I want to ask you about the Giants, and I want to ask you about Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds is someone you covered for many years. So I first want to get your impressions on Barry Bonds becoming the hitting coach for the Miami Marlins. Yeah, a bit of a surprise to some people who, who were around and people in the Giants organization, uh, if only because you know, Barry has always been sort of a guy who drops in and he keeps his own schedule. Um, and I think that he wanted to be a part of things with the Giants. With the Giants, because he's done so much for them, uh, you know, really helped to to rebuild the franchise, make them competitive again when they were on the verge of heading out of town uh, to Tampa Bay in 92, 93, um, and really helping them get the whole ballpark built. I mean, he, he built so much of that momentum because of what he did on the field. Uh, and then obviously gave them so many, you know, monumental uh, milestones over the years, um, you know, really was the face of that franchise. And, and I think that he realizes that uh, he is worth more to them than, than he is worth to anybody else. And uh, he wants it to be compensated commensurate with that. And um, when they were talking about his role uh, and what he would do, well, he still had the legal stuff hanging over him. The Giants always sort of put him off a little bit. Um, but then once that got cleared up, it's like, okay, now let's see what Barry's going to do with the team. Is he going to have a personal services contract? Is he going to be someone who drops in from time to time? Will he, you know, the Giants wanted him to be more of an ambassador, work with season ticket holders, be as much on the marketing side as the baseball side. And, uh, and, and I think Barry was going to make sure that they took care of him. Uh, based on the fact that they owed him big time for everything he's done for the franchise. With the Marlins, they don't really have that baggage with him. Uh, Jeffrey Loria kind of appealed to his ego a little bit and said, look, we really value you. We want you on board. You're going to have carte blanche to run the hitting side the way you want. And uh, I think it was a fresh start for him, and that was something that appealed to him. And, um, you know, a little bit of a surprise that he would dedicate himself not only to 162-game schedule plus six, six weeks of spring training, but, you know, the hitting coach is the first guy at the ballpark. I mean, he's there at, at 2 o'clock for, uh, for a night game. You know, he's, he's there to flip soft toss whenever anybody wants. So um, for Barry to want to take that on full time, I think, surprised some people in the Giants organization. But, you know, this is a guy who, beneath all the bluster and beneath all the bravado and personality, he really does love the game of baseball, and he knows a heck of a lot about the game of baseball. And it's going to be obscured because of, the story controversy and maybe deservedly so, but this guy is maybe the most intelligent hitter the game has seen since Ted Williams. So uh, he's got a lot to pass along and, and really it's, it's the giants loss that, uh, you know, they, they have a ma- major brain drain heading out the door. And I'm sure that the, uh, the Marlins players are going to really benefit from it. Bonds has a reputation for being surly, surly at best. Sometimes do you have any personal run-ins with bonds? Was he ever abrasive or, or mean spirited towards you when you were covering him? Well, I mean, sure, he was toward everybody at some point or another. But, you know, I, I think for me, the, the hardest part about covering Barry wasn't really Barry. It was just everything that came along with him. 
And some of that, you know, is his entourage and some of it isn't his fault. It's all the other media. It's all the other, um, you know, things that come along with a guy who's chasing down Hank Aaron's all-time home run record in the shadow of a, the sport's biggest conspiracy since, uh, you know, probably the Black Sox and the steroid controversy and everything. So, um, you know, when, when you got him one-on-one, he was fine. Uh, he was obviously very circumspect toward the media, as I think he probably had a right to be. Um, but for me, being around him or talking to teammates who were around him, the thing that was most maddening, I think, about Barry wasn't the times that he could be a jerk. It was the times that he could be great and the times that he could be super charismatic, which he was absolutely capable of being, but it always had to be on his terms and you never knew which Barry you were going to get. And I, I think that baseball is such a game about consistency and not only consistency in your performance, whether you can you know, go out and give, you know, four good at bats a day, six days a week or, or what have you, but uh, really consistency of personality because uh, you're around each other all the time. And I think that there's such a value to knowing who you're going to get on a daily basis, who's going to show up. And, you know, I, I've talked to some of Barry's teammates, people who came to the Giants from other places and, and said, you know, I, I really had very minor expectations for what kind of relationship I would have with Bonds. And, and then, you know, one day it's a rain delay, you're sitting in the dugout and, and you're talking about each other's families and he's asking you questions and you're having a great interaction with him and thinking, wow, this is not a bad guy. I, I really was, was wrong about him. It'll teach me to judge people. And you think you have some relationship with him. And then the very next day you say, Hey, Barry, how you doing? And he just walks right past you. Um, and then you're sort of like, Hey, well, well, what's the deal? And it was that sort of inconsistency of personality that, uh, that I think would really make him hard to deal with uh, for teammates. The Giants added Jeff Samarja and Johnny Cueto to their pitching staff. Are they done adding? No, I think they're going to get an outfielder. Um, it's funny. Dexter Fowler was at the Warriors game the other day. So I made a couple calls and I thought, Hey, what's, what's cooking here? And, uh, it turns out there's nothing close with him. I, I still think he'd be a great addition just because he can play some center field, uh, which they're going to need to back themselves up in case Angel Pagan gets hurt again, which he does almost every year. Uh, but they think that Pagan's going to be uh, you know, motivated going into his free agent year. Uh, but they, they will get another outfielder. I think they do have enough money uh, set aside for that. Alex Gordon obviously just signed back with the Royals. Uh, there's Cespedes. There's, I tell you what. You look at all the lefties in the Dodgers rotation, and Justin Upton really hits lefties. He's starting to look like a better and better fit. And if the market isn't there for him somewhere, and maybe the Giants could swoop in and get him, you know, I, they'd still probably have to trump the highest offer by quite a ways because Upton does not like hitting at AT&T Park. But I think they're just right now looking at the guys who are out there and, and trying to be op- opportunistic and finding out where the best value is and where the best fit is. And if it's a guy like Denard Span, then maybe that's where they look. And if it's a guy like Upton and, and he falls a little bit, then I think they're open to that too. And, and, uh, and I wouldn't count out Ioannis Cespedes, although I still think one team's going to come up and blow away the rest of the field for him. What do you think the Giants are expecting from Matt Cain this year? Well, they're expecting him to be a number five, which is probably smarter than what they were expecting out of him this past year, which is for him to be a number two. And then obviously uh, Bruce Bochy's pregame session right before opening day in Arizona last year he tells us, oh, by the way, Matt Cain won't start game two and Jake Peavy won't start game three. They're both hurt. So uh, I, I think that they're being realistic. Uh, this is a guy who has thrown a lot of bullets. Um, he's got an elbow that didn't have – it wasn't a major procedure to get those bone chips removed, but he's a guy who had competed with those chips in his elbow and had sort of short-armed the ball and, and had a different range of motion 
and had learned to throw with his arm that way for years since he probably was a 19 years old in the minors and had a stress fracture in that elbow. So, uh, you know, he's gone, you know, almost a decade throwing that way. And now all of a sudden his arms more loosey goosey and he's got to relearn how to throw and relearn how to have command. And, uh, you know, when you have more range of motion and, and maybe you're not used to throwing that way, we saw what happened at the end of spring. He ends up, uh, tearing a, a part of his flexor mass in his forearm and, and misses a huge chunk of the season. So, you know, I, I think that being another year removed from that surgery, having maybe a full off season of a throwing program, uh, maybe uh, the expectations are that he'll be able to be a little more competitive. But then again, they're putting him in a position where he's their number five starter, not their number two. And uh, and if Kane can't go, then, uh, you know, they've got Chris Heston, who, if he's not uh, this year's version of Yusmero Petit in a long man role, he could step in as well. He obviously had a tremendous first half with a no hitter before he ran out of gas a little bit. And Clayton Blackburn, they like him a lot. He's a command guy. Uh, be interested to see how his stuff would play against big leaguers, but he did win the AAA ERA title, which is a pretty hard thing to do. So uh, they feel like they've got a lot of depth, and uh, and that's really what they needed to go out and address this offseason because between Tim Hudson, Jake Peavy, uh, Kane, Lincecum before he got hurt, these guys just struggled so much to get through a lineup a third time and they had to use their bullpen a lot more than they wanted. All of a sudden, you're having to use Sergio Romo and, and uh, Javier Lopez in mop-up roles sometimes or, or against lefties or righties, not using them in a specialist role. And I think the bullpen uh, uh, was very, very talented but was overtaxed last year. And, you know, they even had two long guys on the roster and were carrying 13 pitchers for a huge chunk of the year, which is just not a functional roster for a, a National League team to have. And then they had nothing on their bench as a consequence. And a lot of their um, comebacks came up short. And I think they were something like 15 and 29 in one run games. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that they went, you know, uh, most of the season without getting almost any production off of their bench. So they should have a more functional roster because they have a more functional rotation. And obviously Samarja has got terrific stuff. Cueto is, is very accomplished. And, uh, and Bumgarner's Bumgarner. So they feel really, really good about what they've done to address their pitching staff. Let's switch focus to the Hall of Fame. I want to get your thoughts on the new rule the Hall implemented this year requiring voters to have been active BBWAA members within the last 10 years. This purged about 90 voters and will continue to eliminate some voters going forward. What are your thoughts on that change? So my initial thought was kind of an oh no, because, uh, you know, I, I sort of spent my uh, writing career, had some opportunities to do other things here and there, but uh, really wanted to, to get those 10 years in the BBWAA to get that vote because I knew it was a lifetime vote. And once uh, I had established that and, and qualified, then, you know, I could go teach or I could go dig a ditch or do whatever. And I would always be able to vote for the Hall of Fame and just thought that was the coolest thing. Because it's a huge privilege. It's a, it's a massive honor. But, um, you know, I, then you start thinking, well, really, would I be qualified to vote, you know, in 40 years if I haven't covered the game in 30? And, uh, you know, you look at some of the wacky votes you get from people. I remember there was one guy who was like a radio guy in Tucson that had be re- been retired for 30 years, and he didn't vote for Ricky Henderson and just said, oh, I, I, I forgot to check his name. And I thought he was kind of a hot dog. And I'm like, really? I, I never want to be that guy, nor do I think I would be. But, it's it's about having a qualified uh, electorate, and I think that the electorate is more qualified if it's more current. Um, and you know what? My first year voting for the Hall of Fame was uh, Jim Rice's last year of eligibility, and uh, I got my card really young when I was 21, so I was voting for the Hall by 31. 
But here, Jim Rice is, you know, going to be a very, very close call, and uh, I'm voting for the first time. And Jim Rice played his last major league game when I was a freshman in high school. So I'm like, am I really qualified to be, you know, maybe somebody who's a deciding vote on whether this guy gets in the Hall of Fame or not? So it's sort of the reverse of that. And, uh, you know, I think it's it's a good thing. And there are people I know who have been out of it for a while, and, and, and they've sort of set a standard where it's like, okay, if I look at the ballot and I realize that I haven't covered these guys for half their careers, then I'll go ahead and just not submit a ballot. And, and this way, you're just sort of taking that choice away from, from people who haven't been around the game for a long time. And I, I wish that it was a little longer than 10 years since you were an active uh, um, uh, journalist, but uh, you know they also did shrink that eligibility window down from 15 years to 10, which I'm not a fan of at all. Uh, but you know it's their hall; they can make their own rules. And uh, you know the fact is that uh, they they still authorize us to to be their sort of voting electorate and and make this decision. And and uh, I feel very honored to be a part of that for however long as I can be, and will be as diligent and transparent about it as as I can. Last year, you voted for Craig Biggio, Randy Johnson, Pedro Martinez, John Smoltz, Edgar Martinez, Tim Raines, Jeff Bagwell, Mike Piazza, Barry Bonds, and Roger Clemens, which means four of those guys are no longer on your ballot. Did you vote for the same six holdovers? Yep, the, the same six. Uh, it, it was the second year in a row that I used all 10 slots, and, and, and I never, ever envisioned uh, having to use all 10 slots. I think a lot of a lot of people... Uh, a lot of voters would, would say the same thing, but we've got this backlog. And if you believe that Bonds and Clemens uh, uh, should be in, and, uh, um, and then you know these guys are, are not making it in, where their career totals obviously make them slam dunk Hall of Famers, and then everything else that's attached to them are the reason that they haven't gotten close. So, you know, it's, it's, it's complicated, and I respect people who say no on Bonds and Clemens, and I respect people who do, and I respect people who change their mind. And, and uh um, you know, let it marinate and, and come to a different conclusion as long as they're doing it in an intellectually honest way. And I think most of them are. Uh, but for me, uh, it definitely caused a problem because I might have voted for a couple more people last year. And, and what I think is unfair about it is, let's say that I really supported Jeff Kent's candidacy and, and he was the 11th best guy. Well, not only am I not able to help him build a positive percentage, I'm actually dragging down his percentage. And I just think that's wrong. Um, you know, I think it should be a binary ballot where you check yes or no, and 75% is really, really hard to obtain. I don't think it's going to lead to a flood of candidates, but we, we've given the hall all of our recommendations. They've come back with saying, you know, we like the system as it is. And, uh, you know, for me, I, I'll continue to vote for Bonds and Clemens, and that's my number one priority, and I'll tell you why. I don't think those guys will ever get in on a veterans committee. So, you know, I think that if they get in, it's going to be because the BBWA puts them in, and that's why they're the first two names I check. Well, I checked Griffey first. That was the most obvious one for me. But when I got my ballot, I checked my six holdovers, and I checked Griffey. Uh, I actually didn't check Bagwell at first, and I just had five holdovers in Griffey, and I put my ballot down and uh, came back to it, looked at the other guys. How am I going to fit these other six guys, five guys into three slots? And finally, I, I checked Bagwell. I said he's the best of the rest, and, and by not you know a small margin. So I was down to seven, and then I, I kept coming back to my ballot, thinking, how am I going to get five guys into three slots? How am I going to do it? And then ultimately, when it came time to mail the ballot, I just said, you know what? I think I sort of accidentally came upon a mark of delineation. I, I really struggled with you know how I'm going to sort these last guys. Well, if, if this is a clear line for me, then maybe I'm just going to send this in with just these seven names. So, so that's what I did. I voted for my, my six holdovers and, and Ken Griffey Jr. and, uh, and used seven slots. 
Yeah, that's interesting. It, we saw that the 10 slot limit really hurt some guys. This year, Edgar Martinez has, has already picked up something like 30 votes on, on Ryan Tibbs' tracker. Mike Mussina has gained a tremendous amount of support as well. And those are guys who you look at, if even if you were just allowed to vote for 12 instead of 10, I think their vote totals would be significantly higher than they are now. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, and that's sort of what I'm talking about. Um, you know, if, if if you really believe that Edgar Martinez is a Hall of Famer, but you have 10 names that you feel are more qualified, you can't support the guy. And in fact, you, you drive his percentage down the other way. And and when you look at a guy like a Burt Blylevin, you know, he started around 15% uh, and then had to build organically. And there's a lot of groupthink that goes on and, and people read other people's columns. And maybe you look at a name and don't think, well, that guy's not, you know, that guy's not a Hall of Famer, but then you, you know, read more about him, whether it be a Tim Raines, we've seen a lot of, of copy written about Tim Raines. Uh, and I did not vote for him his first year on the ballot, but I voted for him since because the case was made to me. And I think that you see guys sort of organically build uh, consensus. Uh, you look at Roberto Alomar's first year, and he didn't get in, but he pulled like you know 58% or 61%. And I think a lot of people who didn't vote for him looked at that and said, well, wait a minute, what am I missing here? Okay, no, he did this, he did that. Yeah, he definitely does pass the threshold. And, and that process has to be allowed to play out. Uh, the way it has for past candidates. And, and I fear for guys like Reigns and, and Edgar, whether it be the 10 vote rule or the fact that now their window of eligibility is, is shrunk by, um, you know, a third, uh, they are, they're not going to get that same sort of due process. And there is the veterans committee. And I think the veterans committee will, will probably need some more people to elect, frankly, because they, they haven't really elected much of anybody lately aside from some managers. So uh, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world. I think Alan Trammell will get in on the Veterans Committee. I think Jack Morris will get in on the Veterans Committee. As it was pointed out to me by Jeff Feidelson, the uh, president of the Hall of Fame, you know, more people have gotten in via the Veterans Committee than, than the BBWAA. So, you know, it's not hopeless for some of these guys, uh, but um, you know, I, I, for me, I think Schilling was really, really tough. I was right on the border with him. Uh, then Mucina as well. Uh, they would have definitely been the next two names that I would have checked. Uh, and then, you know, looking at Trevor Hoffman, it's really, really hard to figure out what to do with relief pitchers. Um, the fact that he wasn't really a dominant postseason performer, in fact, gave up some pretty massive um, home runs in the postseason, uh, sort of detracts for me a little bit. I'm not a Lee Smith voter. Um, I, I think that Mariano Rivera is going to be a guy who will get in absolutely close to 100%, but that's mostly because of what he achieved in the postseason and uh, and the all-time saves record, of course. But, you know, for me, it's it's it was almost like I just tried to figure out how am I going to fit these last guys in these slots, and then I realized, you know what, if I'm looking at where the gulf is on my ballot, I've already reached it. I've already, I have the seven names that I feel really, really good about, and these other guys are, are all, you know, how am I going to squeeze them in? And then I decided, well, I'm just not going to squeeze any of them in. But, you know, next year I'll come back and I'll give them all a fair shake again. And and uh, and we got Pudge Rodriguez. We got Vlad Guerrero. We got Manny Ramirez. I mean, what are people going to do with him? So, uh, you know, the debate will go on. It will never end. I actually think Manny is in jeopardy of falling off the ballot his first year on it. And think about that for a second. Manny Ramirez is going to fall off the ballot his first year. I think that at most he gets 10% of the vote. With two suspensions and allegedly failing the test, the survey test in 2003, I think he raises questions whether or not he used his entire career, whether or not that's fair or not. I think that will be a lot of voters' sentiment, and I think he's in jeopardy of falling off. I don't think any of the newcomers, the first ballot guys, Vlad, Pudge, Manny, or Posada for that matter, are going to get in next year, and I think that helps 
Reigns and Bagwell, as people will want to vote some people in, and I think those guys will get make up the ground that they need to make up, which will be somewhere between 5 and 10%, and I think both of those guys will get in, and Hoffman has an outside chance. But I think that uh, next year is an interesting group, and I think that Piazza getting in will help Pudge Rodriguez, will help Jeff Bagwell, but I don't think it's going to open the floods like some people do. What do you think that will happen if Piazza gets in this year as he is expected to? Well, I think you're exactly right. I think this all sort of starts with Piazza because we've seen some pretty prominent national writers, even some people locally in San Francisco who had not voted for Bonds, all of a sudden on his fourth uh, cycle through, they're, they're changing their minds and they're voting for him. And a lot of it stems back to, look, Piazza was right at 70%. He's going to get in this time. I vote for him because it's unfair to you know, vote uh, or disclude somebody for, for innuendo. And yet, I'm pretty sure my gut tells me that he used steroids at some point in his career. So, you know, if I'm letting in somebody who just didn't get caught, uh, you know, how can we lead up off the game's all-time home run hitter, one of the greatest offensive threats the game has seen since Babe Ruth? Um, so, you know, I, I sort of get that um, sort of uh, justification. And there is no perfect justification. There's no perfect ballot. There's no perfect system. I mean, they're all flawed to either a great extent or a picky extent. Um, but, uh, you know, I think you're right. Piazza getting in is going to sort of open up the, uh, the gates for the people who have some suspicions attached to them, whether it's Bagwell. I mean, the first year that they had the penalty phase of testing, you know, Pudge Rodriguez lost 30 pounds and it was pretty obvious why he lost 30 pounds. Um, but you know, he, he was in Jose Canseco's book and all that, but you know, not exactly as stern stuff as, like you said, with Manny Ramirez, who actually failed tests and was suspended, or Rafael Palmero, who was suspended and then obviously fell off the ballot. And that's a guy who's got 3,000 hits and 500 home runs. So um, I, I think that Manny is going to get the votes. Maybe if he comes up with Palmero four years ago, uh, nobody votes for him, but I think he's going to definitely get enough to stay on the ballot. And then Sheffield is another guy who has. Uh, you know, a lot of those Balco attachments to him and, and he has gotten enough to just stay on the ballot. And I think Manny's accomplished more than Sheffield did in his career. So I would expect that Manny's still going to draw uh, enough to stay on the ballot and stay around for a while. But um, gosh, it, it's hard for me to, to see him getting in, especially with those suspensions on his record. Do you think that there were players already in the Hall of Fame who use steroids? Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I, I, I think it'd be wildly uh, unfair for me to mention any names without any proof, but there's one guy that I covered at the very, very end of his career, his last season. Um, and, and again, this is just, you know, hearing people talk behind the scenes and uh, you know, just sort of seeing what kind of condition he was in and, and you know, um, just you know, just using the eyeballs, you know. And, and uh, again, this is nothing that I would, I would base any decisions on, but you're asking me the question. Uh, yeah, definitely I had my suspicions then and, and still do. And that's somebody who's in the Hall of Fame, you know, who I, I won't name again because that'd be pretty irresponsible. But anyway, the answer to your question is, yeah, I, I, I think so. I quickly want to ask you about Kurt Schilling this year because I think he's an interesting case. He's lost seven votes this year. I think one of those um, seven votes that we know of as of now, I think only one of those ballots contained all 10 slots, which suggests to me that his insensitive comments are actually costing him votes. Do you think that's fair? Well, I think that... Uh... I don't know. It's it's hard to say. I, I don't think that um, I think the writers have been pretty good about not penalizing people who 
they don't necessarily like. I mean, Eddie Murray had a very, very contentious relationship with writers throughout his entire career, and he coasted in on the first ballot as well he should have. Um, I, I think that you know, there, there have been a lot of cases where people have been unpopular and they've made it in. And, uh, so, you know, I, I don't know. I guess that's just a question for individual voters. Uh, for me, um, you know, I, I look at you know what he did in terms of strikeouts, in terms of his postseason success, in terms of you know, being a part of some iconic baseball moments, and uh, and he's right there for me. The the career totals I think are 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 a little bit uh, light for where they should be, whether it's ERA or or um, you know just the the number of seasons of dominance that he had. But uh, you know, we saw Clayton Kershaw strike out 300 this year, and nobody had done that since Schilling. Um, and I mean, that's a hard thing to do. And at his peak, his peak was just so so high. Um, you know, that, that he sort of gets in on that sort of Sandy Koufax type of guys that didn't do it for, you know, uh, 20 years, but, but their peak was just so unbelievable. And, and I, I have, I, I think that maybe in the future I will vote for Schilling. Uh, I decided not to do it this year just because, uh, you know, I, like I said, I just got to that sort of mental point where it's like, okay, I've got these seven that I feel really, really strong about. How am I going to get the rest in? And, uh, I almost felt like, it would be wrong to to vote one over the other uh, and leave out somebody else. So I, I sort of drew the line where I drew it, and and, um, and maybe I'm I'm becoming a little more of a small hall guy. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I I think that if you vote if you don't vote for Schilling because you don't agree with what he says, um, and he obviously said a lot of asinine things uh, recently and over the years, um, I, I don't know if that's necessarily uh, something that should be a part of the uh, criteria. But, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if for some people it is because, you know, as much as we try to quantify greatness, it's uh, you're dealing with a romantic game, you're dealing with a romantic place, and you're dealing with uh, something called fame, which is a romantic notion. And I think at some point, uh, uh, you know, as much as you try to look at Jaws and some of these great metrics that are out there, a lot of them challenge your perceptions. A lot of them are very eye-opening. For me, it boils down to did you make an impact? You know, were you memorable? Um, did you have a career that resonated with fans? And uh, those are really the things that I think about the most when I vote for the Hall of Fame. And Schilling is right there for me, and I think maybe in the future I'll vote for him, but but this year I, I didn't. And again, your ballot this year, Ken Griffey Jr., Edgar Martinez, Tim Raines, Jeff Bagwell, Mike Piazza, Barry Bonds, and Roger Clemens. Andrew Baggerly, thanks so much for joining the podcast. People can follow you on Twitter at Extra Bags and buy your book giant splash you have other books on amazon as well thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today enjoyed it ross thank you 